Welcome to the Reforming Worship Podcast, brought to you by the Church of Philadelphia in Traverse City, Michigan. The 21st century Reformation call for the Christian Church to return to the Bible and worship God as He has prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. I'm Andrew Smitty, the host and content manager of the show. Please stay tuned in for the final segment of today's podcast. We'll be discussing different ways for our listeners to connect with us, and we'll be announcing upcoming events and plans for future updates concerning content and resources. Thanks, Andrew. This is Pastor Caleb with the Reforming Worship Podcast again, and uh, we just kind of wanted to start to defend some of what we spent last time talking about. We we kind of we kind of took the bird's eye view of what we're trying to say that the church needs to return to the true gospel, a true understanding of the scriptures, and that should inform how we worship. And it's not that is not happening in the vast majority of the visible church. So. As we begin to kind of defend and kind of set the stage, kind of prove what we just talked about, we just stated it last time, we didn't really defend it, we have to start with the authority of the scriptures. Now, I'm hoping this is a subject that Christians all around the world can agree on to start. I hope as we establish the authority for what we're doing and why we're doing it, we can be on the same page with this. I think a lot of um, a denial of sola scriptura actually comes more in what we allow, what we allow to um, to come into our worship, what we allow to, ourselves to think about God, the conjectures we make. I think most Protestant Christians would say that they believe that the scriptures are the sole infallible rule of faith in the church. the The question is: Is that informing our gospel? How much? Um, the Douglas Wilson example, how much sand can go into the sugar bowl before it's not a sugar bowl anymore? How many unchallenged presuppositions do we carry towards the text without actually um, letting the text inform us? Not, um, not only who God is, not only what we must do to be right with him, but how we are to worship him. So this first segment is going to be about sola and tota scriptura. That is, the Bible is the sole infallible rule of faith in the church. So, and yes, it's a gospel issue. That's the first thing I want to say. Sola in tota scriptura is a gospel issue. All right. Um, I get a little embarrassed sometimes um, when even these heavy hitting reformed guys, uh, 10 times my scholarship or anything else, they'll talk about how, yeah, it's not an essential doctrine. It's really, really important. And if you deny it, oh man, your, your essential doctrines are soon to follow, but uh, it, you know, sola and tota scriptura, uh, the scriptural inerrancy and infallibility, yeah, they're, they're kind of the second tier. And I want to argue with you and, and, and just say that Paul saw them as essential. They saw, he saw that as the beginning and the end of the gospel, as we read last time. For I delivered to you for first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scripture. According to the scripture, according to the scripture. Okay, no, we have to be consistent with this. The next time somebody tells you that the that the the gospel is all about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you, <laughs> if you love this person, you're going to open up to this text and show them. No, it starts with the inerrancy of scripture as the only authority that can inform us as to who Jesus is and what happened on the cross, and it ends with scripture. You could really summarize the call of the gospel, not as Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, not as uh, if you pray this magic prayer, you'll be right with him. Um, do you re- did you mean that prayer, brother, sister? Did you really mean it in your heart? Well, then stop telling the 
You can tell the devil to stop bothering you. You're a true Christian now, and nobody can take that away from you. It's amazing. A biblical call would sound like Christ died for your sins, was buried, and rose again on the third day. Now search the scriptures, First and Second Testament, Old and New Testament, to seek out everything that that means. Jesus' message twice on the Sunday he rose from the dead. First, to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then second of all, to his disciples in the upper room. Same message, all the law, all the prophets, all the writings speak of me. That's the, that's the, Torah, that's the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketavim. All scriptures speak of Christ. Every last one of them. So, that's a, when we go to the word of God as our sole authority, we have to be looking for Christ in the text. Um, we love to talk about the historical grammatical interpretation and, uh, and practical uh, preaching and practical application and applying the word to your life and doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. And all of that's true and all of that's wonderful and absolutely nothing I just said would a Pharisee disagree with. But where did Jesus pin them down and say the historical grammatical interpretation was not good enough? He says, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life, but it's these that testify of me. If we don't have a Christocentric reading of the scriptures, the gospel's lost. And if you're saved, hearing this and not understanding how all the scriptures point to Christ, you are missing one of the greatest joys of the Christian life. And I'm even going to say it this way. The reason that you're in Christ and not a Pharisee is purely a function of grace and has nothing to do with what you profess. Strong enough language? Okay, all right. Now let's let's move on. So we have a revelational epistemology as Christians. We have a revelational epistemology. Now what does that mean? Okay, that means you can't prove the Bible. You can't prove the Bible. The Bible is your starting point. It is the sole infallible rule of faith in the church. Now, that's straight from Dr. White, and I confess my indebtedness to him as far as understanding what, what Scripture alone means. I gladly would plug his book called Scripture Alone, written by Dr. James White. I, I love that book. Read it, reread it. It's amazing. We would not agree with everything uh, Dr. White says, but on this subject we are pretty united. Um, so other than he would say that this, this doctrine is not essential to salvation, and we, um, in the brief time I got to spend with him, we, we uh, very politely disagreed about that. Um, so we have a revelational epistemology. The scriptures are the sole infallible rule of faith in the church. What does that mean? That means they are the highest authority. They are the highest court of appeals beyond which no plea can be made, beyond which no appeal can be made. Pastors have genuine authority. Um, husbands and fathers have genuine authority. Uh, police officers and presidents have genuine authority. The scripture is the final ultimate authority. The scripture is what informs all the other authorities how to live rightly before God. So we have a revelational epistemology that means that we don't prove the scriptures, the scriptures prove everything else. We start with the scriptures. The scriptures are not the finish line where if we put enough evidence in front of the unbeliever, maybe they'll believe what we believe about the scriptures. No, the scriptures are our starting point. 
And maybe you'll say, well, unbelievers won't accept that. Unbelievers won't respect that argument. And I'm going to tell you, that's the point. It's supposed to be foolishness to those who are perishing. If you preach a gospel that's not foolishness to those who are perishing, you do not have a high enough view of Scripture. I think that's fair to say. So, what kind of revelation are we dealing with? Well, there's a natural revelation. Natural revelation. That is God's created world, God's created order. It shows us that he's orderly, that he's, um, he, he transcends logic, but he himself is, is very logical. He, the, the rules of logic are universal. They're, they're, um, they're immaterial, and they reflect the nature of God. The beauty of creation, all of this testifies of God, but it testifies of God as a witness, all right? Um, reading from Romans 1, many people think Romans 1 says that uh, God is proven to the unbeliever by nature, and that's not true. Romans 1 says that nature is the primary witness against the unbeliever that God exists, and, but the fact that God exists is something that's actually created inside of him. And when I say primary, I mean until the missionary gets there. I mean the uninformed pagan has nature as a witness against him, testifying to what is already in his heart. Okay, so the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Again, that's a continual suppression, um, but all the Reformed guys emphasize that, and God bless them for it. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. It goes on to explain their idolatry and how God gives them over to a debased mind. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, going back to verse 19, for God has shown it to them. God has shown it to them, and that is the witness but it's manifest in them. Uh, Another place to kind of confirm what I'm saying, that it's actually part of the Imago Dei, it's actually part of the image of God, that we know that God exists. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. So Ecclesiastes 3.11 there, God has put eternity in the hearts of men. Your dog does not stare out the window contemplating eternity in the great beyond. The fact that you can even fathom eternity is evidence that you are in the image of God. That's a natural revelation. So supernatural revelation, or it's more commonly called special revelation, is what we could not know about God unless he humbled himself to reveal it to us. Um, John Calvin refers to it as God humbles himself and lisps to us. He talks baby talk to us. He talks to time-bound creatures in a time-bound way and shows us himself. So um, that is the Bible, What God, how God has planned to reveal himself to his people, the church. And on that, the Bible is not basic instructions before leaving earth. The, God, uh, the Bible is not a grab bag of biblical truths. 
in the Bible is not something you have to work inordinately hard on, and especially in the First Testament, to make it applicable to people's lives today. The Bible is our covenant documents. God has made a covenant with man, which embodies him showing himself to us, identifying the sovereign, giving a covenantal history, giving us requirements or law, either requiring that those requirements be be held up or the covenant be broken, like in the case of Adam, or fulfilling the requirements of the covenant himself, as in Christ, therefore imputing his righteousness to us. If you get that, you have the gospel. But the Bible is our covenant documents from beginning to end, every administration of the single covenant of grace. And a lot of times people try to make the Bible into something that it's not. I mean, our church has taken a really strong stance against recreational marijuana, and you wouldn't believe the conversations you get into. Where in the Bible, chapter and verse, does it say, I can't smoke a joint? It's like, how long do you want the Bible to be? The Bible doesn't tell you how long before you should change your oil or, or, or anything else. The Bible is written to the church, not to an individual. It's profitable for an individual. It's, it's a wonderful thing for an individual to have, but it was God's gift to the church. So when we receive the Bible, we have to understand a couple of things. First of all, God alone knows the books that he has inspired versus the books that he has not inspired. Okay, God alone knows the books that he has inspired versus the books that he has not inspired. Um, That's sometimes referred to, again, as Canon 1. Canon 2 can be our understanding of how we got those books, right? Uh, Canon 2 is our understanding of Canon 1, right? So God alone knows what books he's inspired and what books he hasn't. Now, has God shown that to his people? Do we, ha- do we understand that he has shown that to us? What's our degree of confidence that we're not missing a couple? Or, or, or How do we know these things? Well, it's the purpose of God in Revelation. We want to stress the purpose of God in Revelation. Deuteronomy 29, 29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The things revealed belong to God, but what he's revealed, he's revealed for us and to our children. It is directly described as the purpose of God to reveal his word to us, that we might live in his sight, that we might live in a way that's pleasing to him, that we might rejoice in the gospel, grow in our love for him, grow in our hatred for sin, and worship him rightly and worship him rightly. Really quickly, on as far as the Apocrypha go, um, sometimes the Apocrypha is cited in the New Testament, but it's never, um, it's never said, said to be as it is written, and then a citation from the Apocrypha. It's, it's, always, um, it's always just quoting contemporaneous literature. Those were not stored up in the temple like the other, like the other books were. Um, really, anybody who's had exposure to the Jewish canon knew that in the older church, in the early church, and the people who had more Greek influence were honestly confused. Um, the difference between Augustine and Jerome, for instance, Augustine thought the Apocrypha should be in there and Jerome didn't. Jerome went to Jerusalem to go learn Hebrew. He wanted to get visions of dancing Roman girls out of his head, so he figured learning Hebrew would do it. Um, it, it it's not a joke. That, that's actually why he got into that got into that line of scholarship. And with his exposure to the Jewish people, 
in the in their understanding, he knew right away that the apocrypha was never considered scripture. And Augustine was genuinely confused about that. His his Greek was much better than his Hebrew. So just briefly on the apocrypha there. So when we start talking about infallibility and inerrancy, what are we talking about? We're saying that the original autographs they are inspired and they are inerrant. They are inspired and they are inerrant. They are the very words of the living and the triune God. Um, when I am privileged to read the word every Sunday to the congregation, I always end with, and these are the words of the living and the triune God. And the congregation says, praise be to God. We understand that's the greatest gift apart from his son that we could have ever received. But it's integral to the gospel. It's not apart from his son. We wouldn't know what Jesus did without the words of God. So it's baffling to me why these mighty men of God will say that infallibility and inerrancy isn't a primary doctrine, but they will admit that without the scriptures, we would have no primary doctrines. Furthermore, will somebody please tell me what a secondary doctrine is so we can stop teaching it already? I thought all the law, all the prophets, all the writings spoke of Jesus, and it's either true or it's not. And if it's not true, stop saying it. If it is true, teach it rightly, and then let's have these debates Goodness, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting three churches. Now, those divisions, why we're not the same church, they either matter or they don't. If they do matter, well, then, pastor, be a man and have a debate. Let your congregation know that you've thought out these issues. Tell them what the issues are. Anyway, that was that, that was just free. Um, as far as inerrancy and infallibility go, uh, let's uh, let's address a couple things here. First of all, Jesus claimed to be the writer of Scripture, Old and New Testament. Jesus claimed to be the author of Scripture. Isaiah 40, verse 7, The grass withers and the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now listen to this. Citation from Jesus in Mark thirteen thirty one: Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words, did you hear it? My words shall not pass away, right? That the word of our God stands forever, my words shall not pass away. And to go off B.B. Uh, Warfield here for a second, um, sometimes we miss claims of Christ's deity because we know the end of the story. How would that have sounded to the original audience in Mark 13? He just claimed deity, and he claimed to be the author of Scripture. Again, in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. How amazing. Um, This is another Dr. White, and I'm so grateful for him showing me this. The Pharisees. Um, they're trying to trap Jesus. There's a story about a lady who goes through seven husbands. They all die. She remarries. Uh, and uh, they're trying to trap him and saying, in the resurrection, which one is her husband? And it's uh, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. So I think I said Pharisees. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-one. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Okay, when regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Okay, the verbs don't match. The verbs don't match here. 
Again, thank you, Dr. White, for your magnificent work on this. Have you not read what God wrote to you would be matching verbs, right? Or have you not heard what God has spoken to you? What other passage is so clear as to say, when you are reading the words of Scripture, when you are reading the words of the living and the triune God, when you open your Bible and begin to read, God is speaking to you. He um, destroys their argument against the resurrection. They're saying there is no resurrection of the dead. Uh, When you die, the lights are out. Um, He says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. See, he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Did you hear that? Jesus argued a point of major doctrine on the tense of one verb. Jesus certainly believed that the Bible has been kept pure in every generation, in every age. So, when we see 2 Peter 1.16, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration, right? For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the more sure prophetic word. We have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Okay, do you hear what Peter just said? The word of God that you have leather bound with gold leaf pages is a more sure prophetic word than hearing God the Father utter something from heaven while seeing Jesus glorified with Moses and Elijah. This is the more sure prophetic word. Amazing statement. Verse 20, But now this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by the act of a human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, that 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 moved is more like dragged or carried would be a better translation there, I think. And, and I think that there are many that would agree with me on this. So, when we lay down that understanding, now we're ready to talk about Second Timothy 3.16. All right, that the word of God, what, what, what does he say there? That the word of God is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, lacking nothing, right? Ready for every good deed. So, but but listen to what what's said before this. You, however, back in verse 14, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Okay, Paul is talking to Timothy about the what we would call the Old Testament right now. The Old Testament is profitable to bring you salvation in Jesus Christ. We need to understand the New Testament is like the cheat codes for Gentiles. 
That it, it, Jesus rebuked his disciples for not seeing him in the first testament. He didn't say, I can't blame you. Romans hadn't come out yet. So we need to get that in our hearts and our minds. The scriptures have been sufficient. All scripture is inspired by God, profitable for doctrine, teaching, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearance in his kingdom. Preach the word. And that Second Timothy chapter 4 division is in a really bad place. It's therefore Paul charges Timothy to preach the word. Remember what Paul says elsewhere in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Well, I'm already five minutes past where I was trying to go with this, so let's just deal with a couple objections, all right? The fact that scribes misspelled things, got things wrong, redacted texts and things like that, that doesn't hurt the infallibility of the word of God at all. It's actually really easy to see the true text because the Bible was copied so far and wide. When you bring the collections of the manuscripts together, you can see that God has kept his word pure in every age. And the purposeful redactions, the purposeful changes are really, really, really easy to see. And I think people really embarrass themselves when they try to defend things that have that are quite obviously additions. I think that's been proven fairly recently. Um. Furthermore, it's not anything against the Word of God that you can tell different writers, different writing styles. For instance, um, Luke and Hebrews being written in classical Greek uh, versus Koine for the rest of the New Testament. First John being written in C-spot run, and then we got other things going on. Again, in the book of Hebrews, I don't even know which way to hold my Greek texts. Right? That that doesn't hurt the inerrancy of Scripture at all. We're not Muslims. We don't think that Jabril came in and dictated word for word what we had to say, right? Uh, what, what the what the Scripture writers had to say. Rather, they were dragged about by the Holy Spirit when they wrote. Okay. So that being said, if um if a musical artist with a very very particular style plays the piano, and you can recognize that style when he plays the piano. And you can also recognize that same uniqueness of style when he picks up the guitar and begins to play that. Or, or as he switches instruments, it's the same musician sounding himself through different instruments. We shouldn't be thrown by the gospel writers sounding different at times. Remember, we're talking about Toda Scriptura, all the scriptures, not just the scriptures we like or the scriptures that we understand. They all speak of Christ. Take a good look at Luke 24. And uh, we pray that God would continue to be kind to his church for Christ's sake as he will and has done in every generation. Thanks, Pastor Caleb. Well, we do want to thank you for tuning in to another episode of Reforming Worship. And to show our gratitude toward our listening audience, we would like to provide you with a free short reading, a small booklet outlining episode one of our first season in this series, introducing what is unequivocally the most important and neglected ecumenical topic facing the Christian church in this final administration of the covenant of grace, that is to say, how we worship. If you would like to acquire this booklet, please direct yourself to the download link in the description box. We also are very eager to know your thoughts. If you would like to submit them by email, we can be reached at reformingworship at gmail.com 
and we would take that opportunity to interact with them and answer them on the show during our Q&A segment coming soon. And finally, if you're in the area and you would like to worship God with us in word and sacrament, come join us this Lord's Day in person for the right worship of God at the Church of Philadelphia, located at 121 South Garfield Avenue in Traverse City, Michigan at 10 a.m. Thank you, and may God bless you and keep you. 